Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Storied History. My name is Charles Chestnut. Uh, I am a former lawyer who became a historian because it was more fun. This very first episode covers some of the history of New Orleans as a city uh, from pre-colonial times up until the War of 1812 and the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. It is not intended to be a comprehensive treatise on history and all of the details, the dates, and the people that were involved. It's more of an overview, uh, and we're going to treat it as such. This is the very first time I have ever done anything like this, so if it does seem amateurish and unpolished, uh, that is why I do apologize ahead of time. And if what I'm about to do sounds like it was written for a steamboat cruise on the Mississippi River, that's because it was written for a steamboat cruise on the Mississippi River. That being said, let's just dive in. But not literally, because it is quite illegal to attempt to swim across the Mississippi River in the New Orleans port. Just a few quick facts about the river, beyond that first one. It is 2,200 feet across, down at the French Quarter. The deepest part of the river, the Nadir, is 200 feet down. And that is off of Algiers Point, which is the bend in the river, right at the French Quarter. New Orleans is 90 miles from the Gulf of Mexico by way of the Mississippi itself. The entire river is 2,320 miles long. It officially begins in Lake Itasca, Minnesota. And to answer your unspoken question, yes. It is still possible in today's day and age for two men and two dogs to travel the entire length of the Mississippi River in a single canoe. I had two very close friends to that in 2014. It took them three months to paddle the entire Mississippi. They described it as a hell of a lot of fun, but it smelled absolutely horrible. And then they didn't talk to each other for about six months. The Europeans discovered the Mississippi River in 1541. A man named Hernando de Soto came across it in Arkansas. He described the river as wide, muddy, and full of logs. It was discovered inland and not in the Gulf of Mexico because... The Mississippi is not like the other major rivers of the world. It does not form a large natural harbor at the mouth. Instead, the water split up into multiple channels, which then split up into smaller channels, and the river primarily diffused into the Gulf of Mexico by way of bayou and swampland. So the mouth of the Mississippi River hundreds of years ago actually looked like swampland, which is to say it looked like the rest of the Louisiana coastline. And if you didn't know what you were looking for, you weren't going to see it. For this reason, it was 177 years between the European discovery of the Mississippi River and the founding of a European colony on its shores. Not that they didn't try. In the 1680s, a man named De La Salle came all the way down the Mississippi from Canada. He got down here and he realized this would be a great spot for a colony. And then he turned around and he went back to Canada without going all the way down to the Gulf. He went all the way back to Canada, he crossed Canada, he crossed the Atlantic Ocean, he went to the King of France, he got funding ships and men, and then he sailed into the Gulf of Mexico, assuming he would find the mouth of the Mississippi River. I mean, how could you miss it? Look how big it is. He was wrong. De La Salle sailed right past the river without ever realizing it was here. 
He went all the way to what is now Texas, close to what is now Mexico, before giving up, starting a colony on those shores. That failed due to starvation, which led to mutiny. He was killed. His men walked back to Canada, and one survived. The world was a brutal place. And brutal places make brutal men. Enter Bienville and Iberville, two fearsome Frenchmen. They had a terrible reputation for attacking English settlements for profit. They were raiders. They got down here, they found the mouth of the Mississippi, and then they founded New Orleans. How did they do it? They asked directions. They spoke to the local tribes who told them how to find the mouth of the river, but much, much more important, told them where to put their colony. They said, if you put your colony right here, here being the French Quarter, it will never flood. And the French Quarter never really has, not in 300 years, not even really during Hurricane Katrina. Now, the drainage in the French Quarter is extremely poor, so if we have a torrential downpour, there will be a few inches of water in the streets, but once the rain stops, the water goes away. Had they not listened, had they put their colony just a few miles up or down river, it would have been subject to periodic flooding. And that is why it is always a good idea to listen to the locals. Now, Bienville and Iberville very brave, to be sure. Unfortunately, they were not very creative. Before they found in New Orleans, they did some exploring and some naming. They went upriver to see what they could see, and what they saw was a large open area with a big red stick. They named this place Red Stick. Baton Rouge, that's what it means, that's where it comes from. Down in the Gulf of Mexico, they seemed to name islands after whatever occurred to them at the moment. So, they dropped anchor and they left their ship at Ship Island. They lost a horn of powder on Horn Island. Deer Island is covered in deer, while Cat Island is covered in, well, raccoons. They missed that one entirely. Raccoons are not native to Europe, and they simply did not know what they were looking at. It's a strange-looking cat. There is a much more important historical name about 15 miles from the French Quarter. In 1699, Bienville sat alone on the side of the Mississippi River. Upriver, around the French Quarter, Iberville waited with all of their men, all seven of them, a few muskets and some tents. Up the river sailed a massive British ship with 160 soldiers, colonists, livestock, cannons, muskets, gunpowder. Anything and everything you would need to push seven Frenchmen off the land and start a British colony instead of a French one. The future of New Orleans hung in the balance. The English captain saw Bienville on the side of the river and actually furled his sails, slowing down, and then called down to him. Excuse me, sir, is this the Mississippi River? Bienville looks up at the English captain and he courageously says, No, this is the Atchafalaya. You've missed it entirely. You need to go back down to the Gulf and keep going. But don't keep going up this river, because Iberville, you remember, terrible reputation as a raider, he has started a fort down here on these shores. He has cannons trained and sighted in on the water. He will destroy your ship to take your cargo. Save yourself, Mr. Englishman. Do not keep going up this river. The English captain thanked him and turned around. And they named this place English Turn. And it is still called that to this day. You can even look it up on your smartphones. And that was the first time, but as you will see later, not the last, that the British will be turned back from New Orleans by something of a deception and a lie. And before we do go any farther, I would just like to say to the British people that are listening that I do love the British people. 
I had the privilege and the honor of studying at Oxford. I love the British people, British culture, British pubs, and British television. I think Doctor Who is amazing. But every good story needs a good villain. And Brits, you guys are it this time around. Sorry, but that's just the way it goes. And it really only comes at the end anyway. So New Orleans is officially founded in 1718. And the very first thing that they had to do was to get people to come here. In order to make this a profitable colony, they needed colonists. In order to get those colonists, they turned to advertising. And in the glorious tradition of advertising, they simply lied. This is the approximate translation of the actual advertisement that went out across France. Come, Frenchmen, to the mountains of New Orleans. Walk the sandy beaches of the Mississippi River, where you will pick up gold, silver, and pearls right off the ground. You'll bring in two crops a year, and you will never have to do a day's work. Because the Indian loves the white man so much, they will not allow him to work in the sun. There is no danger, there is no disease. Surely this is a paradise. Now surely every bit of that is BS, but some people actually did believe it. Germans. Not exactly sure why, but a large group of Germans believed the advertisement and came to New Orleans. When they got here, they did not stay. They kept on going upriver, presumably looking for those mountains. And they found them, sort of, starting a small colony in the foothills of the Ozarks far upriver. The French people were somewhat more cynical even back then. They did not believe the advertisement. So the French government increased the recruitment pressure by turning to the three Ps. The poor, the prisoners, and the pro... professional women. There may be kids listening, and we're going to keep that part clean. Those professional women were given a choice. You can go to jail. Or you can marry a prisoner and go to New Orleans. The prisoners are given a similar choice. You can stay in jail. Or you can marry a professional woman and go to New Orleans. Many, many people took this offer. They were quite literally married in chains, sight unseen, and then sent to New Orleans to begin their new lives as newlyweds. So as you can see, New Orleans has been a honeymoon destination right from the very beginning. Now, even this was not enough. So the French government turned to outright kidnapping, and about 5,000 poor people disappeared off the streets of Paris over the next few years. They were simply picked up, put on ships, and then sent to New Orleans. Now these were not slaves, because they could do anything they wanted once they got here. They were just required to be here. Now, this did succeed in filling the colony with colonists, but not surprisingly, this did not fill the colonists with a large sense of duty, patriotism, or a particularly strong work ethic. But the reputation for New Orleans as a somewhat wild and hedonistic port city began early on. Which is perhaps why the next group of people came. In 1727, the Ursuline nuns came to New Orleans to start a convent and bring a much-needed dose of education, moderation, and religion to the city. They built what is now the oldest standing structure in the city of New Orleans. The Ursuline Convent in the French Quarter is still there. It is quite lovely, and if you are so inclined, you can walk over and take a look at it. It is now a museum. The second oldest building in the city is a bar. And it definitely says something about our culture here in New Orleans, that the oldest building is a Catholic convent, while the second oldest is a bar that was once owned by a pirate. And it definitely says something more about our culture here in New Orleans, and perhaps our culture here in America, that there is no truth to that statement whatsoever. 
it does make a great story. And I do understand that. And that story gets repeated everywhere. It is a wonderful marketing tool. Of that I have no doubt. But there are several distinct factual problems with calling Lafitte's blacksmith shop the second oldest building in the city. Number one. It is absolutely definitely not the second oldest building in the city. Number two, the bar was first opened in the 1970s. Three, the building was never owned by Lafitte and has no verifiable connection to him whatsoever. And four, judging from a lack of iron in the ground itself, it almost certainly was never, at any point, a blacksmith shop. Other than that, I'm sure it sells a lot of beer. And whatever that purple stuff is. The next big cultural development happened in 1724 when they passed a law called the Code Noir, the Black Code. The Code Noir defined the rights and the privileges of the free people of color and of the slaves. The freedmen were given the right to own property and to own weapons. These are rights that were not granted elsewhere on the continent. And that led to a large and thriving freedmen population. Approximately one-third of the city of New Orleans were free people of color by the end of the 1730s. The slaves were given the right to have one day off every week, as well as the right to assemble, and they exercised these rights, getting together on Sundays at a place called Congo Square, which is now called Louis Armstrong Park. And there they would play African rhythms and European instruments. And that mixture is the roots of jazz. Those are the oldest roots. And jazz, as an art form, would not have developed in the way that it did, or in the location that it did, if not for the law passed in 1724 granted the enslaved Africans the right to get together and play music, and later to invent an entirely new type of music. But New Orleans was not a profitable colony until they found their commodity, a remnant of which still exists today. On the shores of the Mississippi River, just a few miles down from the French Quarter, there is a large smokestack. And there, they still make a white powder that makes you hyper. It's kind of addictive, it's pretty bad for you, and it can be expensive. Sugar. Sugar was the real wealth of the Caribbean colonies and New Orleans. Before cotton was king, sugar was white gold. The process for making sugar was very dangerous and very labor-intensive at the time. You took sugarcane sap, you boiled it until there was nothing left. The result was a form of sugar, albeit not one we would recognize today. Back then, it looked a lot more like uh, dark jelly, maybe caviar, than the granulated form we are currently familiar with. At any rate, sugarcane sap boils at a much, much higher temperature than water. And there were many, many men, women, and children who were scalded, disfigured, or killed by the molten sugarcane sap. That is, until the son of a slave, a man named Norbert Rillieu, invented a way to make sugar that did not involve killing the people that made it. Before Norbert's invention, sugar had primarily been made using a process called the, well, nicknamed the Jamaican train, wherein enslaved Africans would transfer boiling sugarcane sap from one pot to another in an effort to reduce the moisture and get it into a usable form. This was extremely dangerous work until Norbert. 
using a vacuum and multi-stage evaporation, using the latent heat from the boiling sugarcane sap to boil the other sugarcane sap within the device, he was able to produce sugar much more quickly, much more efficiently, and without any loss of human life. His invention, one of the great inventions of the chemical industry, saved the lives of easily thousands and probably tens of thousands of enslaved Africans before the Civil War and uh, poor workers after the Civil War. I am of the opinion that he is one of the great unsung heroes of American history and American invention. There is a plaque dedicated to him at the Chalmette Battlefield, uh, another one at Dillard University, erected by the American Chemical Society. But two plaques erected in the last 30 years seems somewhat of a small honorarium to a man whose invention saved the lives of so many. I think his life would make an excellent movie if he did it correctly. As the son of a white slave owner and his slave mistress, a free person of color who moved uh, in New Orleans society uh, and reached the upper echelons of wealth because of his inventions, I personally think Norbert really would make a wonderful subject for a biopic movie picture for Netflix or whomever, but that is uh, well outside of my capabilities to even recommend. And I have become distracted and drifted far afield, which does happen sometimes. So back to the history of New Orleans. Sugar was extremely dangerous to make, but it was very, very profitable. By 1750, sugar was the most widely traded and valuable commodity in all of Europe. And that simple fact is what shaped and defined the next 60 years of New Orleans history. One way or another, it always came back to the sugar. The sale of sugar made the sugar barons obscenely wealthy. The taxes and tariffs on sugar filled the coffers of the kings. And the king of France was very jealous and protective of his sugar taxes, sugar tariffs, and sugar profits. But the king of France had a very serious problem. By the 1760s, he's losing a war with the British. The Americans call this the French and Indian War. The British call it the Seven Years' War. It's the same war. The King of France knows he will be defeated, and as part of the surrender, he'll be forced to give up all of the French lands in the New World to prevent the British from getting their hands on Louisiana and New Orleans, and the resulting sugar taxes, tariffs, and profits, the King of France gives them away. He surrenders to the Spanish in 1763. Spain takes control of Louisiana and New Orleans. Only after this transfer is complete does France surrender to the British, and the British take what's left, and what's left was Canada. And that is how the French colony of Canada became part of the British Empire, now the British Commonwealth. But they don't get Louisiana, and they don't get New Orleans. So New Orleans becomes a Spanish city in 1763. No one tells New Orleans. For two years we were Spanish and we didn't know it. And don't you hate it when that happens. When the Spanish government did finally show up, the New Orleanians reacted rather apathetically. They refused to invite the Spanish governor to their parties. And they wrote letters to the King of France telling him how much we loved him, how much we missed him, and begging him to please, please take us back. It did not work. That sort of thing never does. There was a very minor attempt at a rebellion in 1768. 
wherein a few men knocked on the door of the Spanish governor's house, and they asked him to leave, and he did. But he went to Cuba, he came back with a few more soldiers, he shot the two men that had knocked on his door, and that was the end of the rebellion. It was rather half-hearted. New Orleans was actually a Spanish city for 40 years, which is almost exactly the same amount of time that it was French, but the culture in New Orleans remained almost completely French. Spanish culture actually had very little lasting impact on New Orleans culture, not in language, cuisine, customs, costumes, or holidays. The reason for this is because of women. That's right, women. The Spanish government did not allow Spanish women to come to New Orleans. At all. None. There were no single Spanish women. There were no married Spanish women. There were no Spanish families, which meant that there were no Spanish daughters growing up in the city. They would only send young single Spanish men. And not all that many of those, because this was not exactly a hotbed of rebellious activity. When those Spanish men got to New Orleans, they learned how to speak French very quickly so they could do their jobs, and so they could speak to the locals, and of course speak to the local French women. When they got married, they married the local French women, who cooked French food, spoke French to their children, and celebrated holidays in a French fashion here in the city of New Orleans. For this reason, even through 40 years of Spanish rule, the culture remained almost completely French. Except in one very specific area, and that is architecture. The French Quarter is called the French Quarter because the French people founded it, the French people lived there, they laid down the streets, and they gave them French names. But the buildings in the French Quarter are not French. The buildings are Spanish. This is primarily because the French had insisted on building their buildings out of wood. Sometimes literally just driftwood. This had a tendency to burn down and take large parts of the city with it. After one particularly bad fire, the Spanish government in New Orleans said, No mas. If you're going to build in the French Quarter, you're going to have to use non-flammable material. The Spanish government in New Orleans essentially imported the building codes, the building styles, the building designs, the building materials, and the builders themselves directly from Castilian Spain. Over the course of the next four decades, especially towards the end, they rebuilt the French Quarter into what it is today. The clay-tiled roofs, the stucco walls, all of that beautiful wrought iron ornamentation. These are all elements of Spanish architecture, not French. And that is why foreign visitors to our city, especially if they are from Europe, will frequently remark that the French Quarter looks like an old Spanish town. They're absolutely right, it does. And that is why. Then something happened that nobody expected. The Spanish Inquisition. New Orleans' somewhat wild reputation had spread to Europe by this point. And so the Catholic Church sent some inquisitors across the ocean to put people to the question, to find out what they believed, why they believed it, what they were doing behind closed doors, and why the church was never invited to the good sorts of parties. When they arrived in New Orleans, the New Orleanians reacted appropriately. The Inquisitors were immediately arrested, put in chains, and put back on the ship that brought them here, because we were not going to have any of that in our city. And that was the end of the Spanish Inquisition in New Orleans. So things continue on this way in the city for several decades until the little Corsican rises to power. Napoleon Bonaparte seizes control of France. 
Bonaparte had dreams of a sugar empire funding his wars in Europe. Wars are very expensive, sugar is still very profitable, and once again the history of New Orleans comes right back to the sugar. To accomplish this, to get his sugar empire, Napoleon needed two pieces. He needed Haiti, which was the largest sugar producer, and he needed New Orleans, the biggest city in this part of the world. Now at that point, Napoleon has Haiti, and he wants New Orleans back. In order to get it back, Napoleon goes to the king of Spain, and he says, Give it back. And they do. Now, officially, they traded it for a small piece of Italy. In reality, it was a shakedown. But before his sugar empire could get up and running, there was a slave revolt in Haiti. The Haitian slaves, tired of being scalded, disfigured, and killed by the molten sugarcane sap for the profit of the sugar barons across the ocean, revolt. Napoleon sent an army to retake the colony. The army failed. Haiti remained free. And here's the key. Without Haiti as the sugar producer, Napoleon cannot have a sugar empire. Without a sugar empire, he doesn't want New Orleans. It is a waste of military resources to defend it, and he'll get very little from it. So instead of trying to keep it, he gets rid of it by selling it to the Americans. For $15 million. $15 million works out to three cents an acre. It is, in fact, the largest land deal in all of human history. And yes, it is substantially larger than the purchase of Alaska. Because when I say Louisiana, I do not mean the state. I mean, of course, the watershed. Everything that the Mississippi River drains that is west of the Mississippi River itself. That's the Louisiana Purchase. Thomas Jefferson was almost impeached because he was not given the authority from Congress to borrow the money necessary, and he did it anyway. Or rather, Jefferson's men do. Jefferson's men in Paris cross the English Channel. They go to the London banks, because that's who has the money. They borrow what they need. They take it across the English Channel. They give it to Napoleon. Napoleon gives it to his men. They cross the English Channel. They go to the British manufacturers, because they were the best in the world. They purchase huge amounts of gunpowder and muskets. They smuggle these back across the English Channel. They give them to Napoleon. Napoleon outfits more than one army, and then he attacks everyone with British-made weapons purchased with British money. The British were aware this was happening. It did make them very angry, and that all happened in the early years of the First World War. Now, that is a spectacularly simplistic, gross oversimplification of a very complex series of events, but it is essentially accurate at its heart. And that was the First World War. It's not World War I, but the Napoleonic Wars, the first time in human history that a war was fought on every continent, on every ocean in the world. The French, the British, and their allies began fighting all over the planet. And the Americans, we stayed out of it. At that point in our history, we had very little strength to speak of. We did not get involved in a fight between the two greatest powers on Earth. Instead, we stayed neutral, and we were trading with both sides. Which is somewhat duplicitous, but that is what we did. And while we are staying neutral, and no one is paying attention to us, America starts building ships. Lots and lots of ships. In the first decade of the 19th century, America expands the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Merchant Fleets, and the U.S. Whaling Fleets so quickly, we build so many ships in such a short period of time, that America, as a country, literally starts running out of sailors. We have so many new ships, we do not have enough men to man all of the new boats. Which is actually a real problem. To fix this problem, we turn to the best sailors in the world, the British. British sailors were offered higher wages, better living conditions, a more lenient punishment schedule, more rum. 
American citizenship, and of course the extra added ancillary side benefit of not being at war with Napoleon. Many, many British sailors took this offer. They jumped ship, metaphorically speaking, become American citizens and American sailors. The British were aware that this was happening. It did make them very angry. They need these sailors to fight Napoleon, so they start taking them back by force. British ships started stopping American ships on the high seas, boarding them, and forcing sailors off at gunpoint, telling him that you are now part of His Majesty's Royal Navy, get to work. And that is the biggest single issue that leads to war. The other issue that leads to war is Canada. If you are an American listening to this, you may want to pay attention to this next part of the story. Because this story is taught in every single Canadian school. It is not taught in American schools, not most of them. But it absolutely did happen. The United States declares war on the British in 1812. That is why it's called the War of 1812. And if you're from America, I realize that you don't know anything about the War of 1812. And here's why. The very first thing that we did, the only thing that we did, was invade Canada. Thomas Jefferson had years earlier said this would be a mere matter of marching. We could walk up into Canada, take over the entire country, not even firing a shot. Those Canadians would surrender, become part of the United States, we'd be one big happy family. It did not work out that way. The U.S. invades Canada in 1812 and we were defeated in almost every single battle. We were not defeated by the British Army because they didn't send anyone to help. We were not defeated by the Canadian Army because that did not exist. No. The American Army, now the most powerful the world has ever known, was defeated by the citizen militias of Canada. And their allies, the First Peoples, the native Canadians, especially the Iroquois Confederation. They took their own muskets and they pushed the United States back into the United States. Now, because they were Canadian, I am sure that they apologized while they were doing it, but they definitely did it. In fact, they did it three times. The U.S. invades Canada in 1812, again in 1813, and again in 1814. We were defeated, we retreated three times. The war did not go well. The only bit of success that we had is we were able to occupy a city called York for approximately one week. But when the Canadians arrived, they forced us out. And our way out of the city, we burned it. Which now would be considered a war crime, but that is what we did. And the British got revenge for that one. By 1814, they had finally dealt with Napoleon. They put him on an island where he could never bother anybody ever again. Or so they thought. They were wrong. The British then send a massive fleet across the Atlantic Ocean. The very first thing they do when they get here is invade Washington, D.C. and burn it to the ground. This was revenge for the Americans burning York and several other Canadian cities. York is still there, by the way. It is now called Toronto. After the British burned D.C., they go up the river to Baltimore, and they tried to do the same thing there. But we stopped them before they could at a place called Fort McHenry. We know they couldn't get past the fort because they couldn't take the fort. We know they couldn't take the fort because they couldn't take the flag. Now, I know that. And if you're an American, you know that. Even though you might not know it. By the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Francis Scott Key wrote those words while being detained on a British ship watching them attack Fort McHenry trying to get to Baltimore, 1814. When they failed, they headed south towards New Orleans, 10,000 troops in 42 ships. 
To defend New Orleans, Andrew Jackson had 1,000 American soldiers. Outnumbered 10 to 1 with not enough men and not enough muskets. How Andrew Jackson manages to do this, who helped him, and what happened will be the subject of the second episode of this podcast. And there you have it. That is the first episode of Storied History. I'm sure there are some mistakes in there. Again, apologies. I've never done this before. The second episode will be released within a week or so. It will cover the Battle of New Orleans itself. Who helped Andrew Jackson? Now he stood up against the British, heavily, heavily outnumbered, and certainly outgunned and outmanned professional soldiers with a decade of experience fighting Napoleon in Europe, went up against volunteers, and Jackson, well, we'll cover that in the next episode. I do hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, If you did like it, rate it, subscribe, I believe is what I'm supposed to tell you. Uh, If not, hey, that's fine too. Thank you for listening. Feel free to listen again. I will probably get better with practice, although I can't promise you that.